Starting Saturday, March 21st through Sunday, March 29th, supporters from all over the nation will run or walk 3.1 miles to make a difference for rare disease. The first annual Denim Dash 5K Run Walk for Rare Disease is a virtual race created by Orphan Drug Solutions and Global Genes. You've got the flexibility to participate wherever and whenever is most convenient for you. Run or walk any time between March 21st and March 29th and raise awareness and funds to support families affected by rare disease. Register today and get your race packet at givehope.globalgenes.org forward slash denim 5k. It's that easy. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved more than 230 new drugs to treat rare diseases in the past decade. and There are currently more than 450 orphan drugs in development, according to a new report from the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. Though developing drugs for rare diseases presents many challenges, policy changes and scientific breakthroughs have helped change the landscape. We spoke to Greta Stone, Deputy Vice President of Policy and Research at Pharma, about the report, how the Orphan Drug Act encouraged investment in R&D for rare diseases, and what fuels her optimism for drug development efforts to combat this group of diseases in the years ahead. Greta, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to discuss Pharma's recent report on a decade of innovation in rare diseases, as well as an earlier report that looked at the orphan drug pipeline. I think before we dive into it, though, it it would be useful to start with the universe of rare diseases, how many are out there, how how widely available are are treatments, and what have historically been the challenges for getting companies to invest in R&D for rare diseases? Sure. There are about 7,000 rare diseases out there that we know of, and each one uh, on its own is obviously not common. They all have fewer than 200,000 patients affected, and some of them are much smaller than that, maybe a dozen patients, for example. Um, But as a whole, they affect 1 in 10 Americans, a total of 30 million. And uh, so in aggregate, they are um, a huge challenge that um, is really important to patients. Well, the the Orphan Drug Act changed the landscape for rare disease drug development, What's the Orphan Drug Act, and and why was it created? What exactly did it do? Well, historically, there have been a lot of challenges in developing uh, drugs for rare diseases. Um, And those challenges are kind of fall into two major areas. One of those is the business challenges. Um, You know, the vast majority of drugs are developed and discovered by private companies. Um, Partnerships with government and others are extremely important, but they're, you know, they're not equipped or funded to do drug development. Um, so in, on average, it costs $2.6 billion, $2. billion to develop a drug in more than 10 years. So you can imagine with small patient populations, that's even more challenging to 
uh, recoup costs. And uh, then on the other hand, there's also these huge scientific challenges, which compound the problem. Um, you know, we know very little about most of these diseases, and they tend to be extremely complex. So the Orphan Drug Act is a law that was designed to help address some of these issues. It was passed in 1983, uh, and it uh, includes several different incentives to help make um, research in this area more possible for companies. Um, and I can go through the um, those incentives. The first is a 50% tax credit for R&D expenses. The second is seven years of market exclusivity, which means that no other, no generic competition is allowed to occur within those first seven years that a drug's approved. And lastly, the user fees that most companies have to pay in order for the FDA to review a drug are waived. So that's about $2 million in user fees that are waived. Well, what has been the effect of the legislation? How successful has it been at getting drug makers to invest in R&D for rare diseases? What's been the payoff? Mm-hmm. Well, it is widely agreed that it's been extremely successful legislation, often held up as an example for other areas where we want to encourage increased um, investment and development. Um, and there are many, many drugs that probably wouldn't exist if we didn't have this legislation. Uh, and I think one thing that really illustrates this well is that in the 1970s, there were only about 10 drugs approved for rare diseases. Whereas since 1983, when the legislation was passed, we've had over 500 approvals. Uh, so that's a very dramatic increase. And um, another fact that I think is really interesting is that in the last five years or so, about one-third of new drugs that have been approved for the first time are for um, orphan diseases. So, um, And then add to that the fact that the um, science is very promising. I think we'll be... Uh, going in a very good uh, direction in the next uh, coming decade. Your report highlights several examples of drugs developed over the past decade. How often do these drugs represent a new therapeutic approach, a, a first in class? Um, well, there are, we didn't actually, you know, break up our report that way, but there are a lot of them are first in class. Um, and first in class is often kind of a proxy for innovation. Um, because those drugs use a completely new mechanism. Um, but, you know, fortunately for patients, uh, innovation comes in all different shapes and sizes, and I think the report really shows that. Um, of course, uh, first-in-class drugs have a key place, but there are also some s- situations where there are um, new drugs in an existing class. Um, And one of the diseases we covered in the report is um, chronic myelogenous leukemia. And I think that's a really good example where in 2001, we had the first um, tyrosine kinase inhibitor and the NIB. And then in the last decade, we actually had four more approvals in that space, which is extremely important for patients because uh, they often, that the original drug, imatinib, will often stop working for their cancer or they may not um, respond to it in the first place. So for those patients, the additional drugs in the class are extremely important. Well, are there some other examples from the report you would highlight? Yeah, sure. So um, along those lines, we have um, uh, there are some situations where there's a drug that was already available 
and uh, is now being used for that particular disease. And one really um, interesting example is in NOMID, which is a disease that affects infants. It's neonatal onset multi-system inflammatory disease. It's kind of a, a mouthful, but uh, there are only 100 known cases. And what happens in this disease is that there's um, issues with the inflammatory system, and these patients from a very young age have fever and rash, joint issues, headaches, seizures. Uh, and if it's untreated, about 20% of them don't reach adulthood. So they figured out the gene um, that was responsible. And in 2013, the first drug, which is called Anakinra, was approved for this indication. And it actually was originally a drug used for rheumatoid arthritis. So in this case, the innovation really comes in better understanding the disease and connecting it with a drug that's out there that can really help these patients who can now lead almost normal lives. Are there other examples? Sure. Um, so another example that I, I would highlight from the report is another mouthful, which is uh, mucopolysaccharidosis type 4A. Um, and this is one that affects just 800 patients in the U.S. It's a lysosome storage disorder. The lysosomes are the part of the cell that um, are in charge of waste disposal. And for these patients, they do not have um, some key enzymes. And so sugars uh, will, certain sugars will build up in their cells and it causes um, musculoskeletal problems. Uh, respiratory dysfunction, and basically their mobility and endurance. They have huge challenges there. Um, and uh, the first treatment was approved just last year called Elosulfase Alpha. Uh, so, you know, in a lot of these cases, patients are having the very first treatments uh, that are approved. Uh, and if I can give you one more example, sure. um, I think that the... Um, Hereditary angioedema is a great example, um, abbreviated HAE. Uh, this is one that occurs in just one out of every 10 to 50,000 people. And it's kind of a, a, an alarming disease in that it causes swelling uh, in the hands, feet, face, and even the throat. Um, and it occurs in um, patients originally usually in ages 7 to 13, and it can be life-threatening. And these attacks come on with no real warning uh, every one to two weeks. Just a decade ago, the only way that they could really treat the disease is with surgeries. Um, but in the last decade, we've had five new treatments, and already we've come a long way. The first ones were preventative, but they were um, they had to be um, uh, received in a doctor's office or hospital. Whereas now we have both preventative drugs and, um, you know, acute um, need drugs that can be self-administered at home. So that's another aspect of innovation that um, I think is really important to patients because, you know, it may seem like a small thing to change a delivery mechanism uh, to one that you can administer at home. But, you know, for these patients having to be in and out of the hospital constantly is, is a huge um impact on their life. Well, rare diseases are often genetic. They're driven by genetic mutations. We've seen enormous advances in understanding genetic diseases, starting with the mapping of the human genome. 
How do you see this changing or accelerating scientific research around these diseases? Well, I think it both accelerates our understanding and also, um, you know, it shows us the enormity of our challenge. Uh, understanding the genetics and the underpinnings of these diseases has allowed us to understand and better diagnose all the diseases. For example, um, in the area of blood cancers, these used to be known as diseases of the blood. And over the last several decades, we've learned that there are dozens of leukemias and dozens of lymphomas. So understanding that makes it um, more likely that we will be able to get, and we have in some of these areas, gotten much better treatment. But it also shows us, you know, there's not going to be a magic bullet. Um, there's not one cure for cancer or many other disease areas. So uh, the science and the um, has made it so that we're much more likely to be able to cure and and treat these diseases effectively. Uh, but there is a whole lot of, of work to do. At the same time, we're seeing the development of new technologies that target the genetics of an underlying disease, whether it's something like RNAi or gene therapy. How dramatic are these new technologies reshaping the drug pipeline for rare diseases? Uh, well, you mentioned RNAi, and I think that's just a great example. Um, the uh, RNA, of course, is the you know kind of the mirror image of DNA, and these RNAi inhibitors are able to silence gene expression. And anytime you're working on the um, genetic level, it has a really disproportionate effect for rare diseases, since, um, as you probably, all, most of your listeners probably are aware, eighty percent of rare diseases are um, genetic in their basis. But RNAi um, drugs are opening huge avenues for us. Previously, we were really only able to target proteins and DNA with the drugs that we had. And we know that there are huge numbers of other ways that we can target our drugs. And targeting RNA is one example. So this is just opening a whole new world of um, opportunities for us. And there are many other examples of, of these kinds of technologies, sort of platforms, um, such as immunotherapies, cell therapy, um, conjugated monoclonal antibodies. Uh, and so it is it's extremely exciting. And um, I think all the diverse um, diseases out there, there's, there's just so many promising opportunities. Well, earlier, you made reference to the, the high cost and long time it takes to develop a drug. One of the challenges for developing a drug is the small patient populations in, in rare diseases and being able to conduct clinical studies with enough patients to establish the, the safety and efficacy. As we talk about reducing the cost of drug development and accelerating the process, what strategies do you see being viable for addressing this? Well, this is a really exciting area. Um, companies are working with partners um, to find better ways to do clinical trials. We think of innovation a lot of times as happening just, uh, you know, in the basic research area, but uh, there's so much going on in clinical trials that, um, you know, it makes us all very optimistic. Um, one big area is biomarkers. Biomarkers are anything that can uh, allow researchers and clinicians to see if a patient has a disease and how it's progressing. Cholesterol is, is one very common example. By having um, these ways of monitoring the disease, 
it's much um, more, there are much more reliable ways for researchers to understand if a drug is working for patients. So they're able to um, show statistically with smaller uh, groups of patients in clinical trials and more quickly they can tell if a medicine is working. So that is going to help us do faster trials, especially with, with small populations. There are also a lot of different clinical trial models and collaborations going on that uh, are really revolutionary. Uh, one um, example is they have these new basket or bucket or umbrella trials. There are different names for them. But one uh, very uh, well-often-cited example is called LungMap. And it is a, a new approach in which there are basically five clinical trials in one. So a patient will come in, they're tested for a range of um, genetic mutations in their tumor. It's all, it's all lung cancer, but they're, they're tested for all these different mutations. And depending on which mutation they have, they receive a different drug. So rather than having to try five different trials, it's all streamlined. Uh, and so there's a lot of excitement around these very new approaches that uh, seem to be really bearing out. And, you know, we expect that to, to expand beyond cancer. Um, and partnerships uh, are extremely important for this. Uh, you know, we want all patients to have access to clinical trials. And by working with patient groups, we're often able to connect with patients more quickly and make sure that uh, anyone who wants access to the clinical trials is able to do so. You, you mentioned earlier there are nearly 7,000 rare diseases. There are still less than 500 drugs approved to treat any one of them. Some 95% of these diseases with, are without any approved treatment. How optimistic are you about the landscape being dramatically different 10 years from now? And, and if you are optimistic, what fuels that optimism? Well, there's, there's no question that we have a long way to go. Uh, but I think putting in perspective, I'm extremely optimistic. This is a, a very historic moment. This is We have the most exciting science that we've ever had in all of human history. Um, and so that is, we are working very hard to translate that exciting science into tangible treatments for patients. Uh, so, and we've, we've come so far just in the last uh, decade in, in finding new technologies and, and new platforms to, to do so. Um, so combining the, the exciting science with the incentives of the Orphan Drug Act, I think we have great promise to, to deliver. And don't get me wrong, the science is extremely difficult, but I think that we're a better placed than ever before to be successful. Greta Stone, Deputy Vice President of Policy and Research at the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. Greta, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. At the end of February, we interviewed Noah Coughlin, founder of Run for Rare, as he was preparing to set off on his 3,100-mile run across the country to raise awareness for rare diseases. We'll be checking in with Noah regularly as he makes his way from the Statue of Liberty in New York to Ocean Beach in San Diego on July 4th. Here now is our latest check-in. Noah, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me again. Um, a, a huge huge voice for the rare disease community, and I thank you. I've been following your progress online, watching the various local TV interviews and your posts. How many days have you been on the road, and, and how many miles have you logged? Uh, today is day 12 of 127 total. 
I have logged, I uh, just crossed over the 200-mile mark a few miles back with a, approximately 2,800 miles to go. And, and you're taking a break in the action today. you still got running ahead of you before you, you finish the day, I understand. Yeah, the uh, with the time change, it kind of uh, the sun sets about seven thirty ish p.m. Eastern time, and I'm just using daylight to my advantage and walking, running, just uh, trying to trying to make some progress. Um, and my body is adapting well, my mind is uh, adapting well. Well, I, I got to so tell comfort. you, I had people in the areas you were running cancel phone calls with me because of bad weather. And snowstorms, and all I could think is, my God, you had to run through that. What what's oh, the weather been well, like, and, and how, how have the conditions been? The first week was very hectic, um, very challenging, and very um, very hard. Lack of sleep because of all the excitement on the on the start, uh, gearing gearing things up for for running. Uh, it was a very bitter about. 15 degrees when I started in the morning at the Statue of Liberty on day one and had multiple layers, uh, compression shorts, com- all the way to le- compression leggings, all the, the um, gloves and scarves and uh, and face masks. So that's how the thing started on, on rare disease day, February 28th. In. And it, weather started to be intermittent, uh, some snow, some ice, some, some black ice, freezing rain. Uh, pretty pretty nasty conditions for an athlete to run in, especially on the side of the road, pushing a stroller on a sidewalk and in the street. And it was pretty cold the first week. Uh, I think I think winter ended with a final blast in Philadelphia. I was forced to take a day off on day eight, I believe, because it, we received eight to ten inches of uh, snow between six a.m. and six p.m. Well, you've been meeting people along the way and dedicating each leg of the run to different folks with rare disease. What's the experience been like so far? You know, I'm seeing a, a, a huge flood of support from uh, from the rare disease community and even outside the rare disease community, uh, which is amazing. People are starting to talk, and that was the intention of, of the entire Run Across America idea, even years ago, was to get the word out. Um, for, some, for things that are so rare, you've got to do something really big. So uh, from the... From people in many different uh, areas in rare disease, whether it's a scientist or, or the head of a, a company or a, a rare disease child or, or, or parent, I, I'm, I'm receiving very positive support, and my inboxes are filling up on uh, Facebook and uh, Twitter and my emails and, and everything, and it keeps me going. It keeps me motivated and doing the best I can to find out where the rare family is in every single city, because there is one in every single city. What's been the biggest surprise so far? The biggest surprise, I would say, um, this is the first time I've run east to west. So being from Northern California, I'm used to about 70-degree weather year-round with a few temperature fluctuations. Uh, To be in the bitter cold, that was really new to me day after day after day. Um, but I also do appreciate it because when I reach the desert, uh, and it's maybe a hundred degrees in New Mexico or Arizona, I'm going to think back to wish I was still at New York and New Jersey. So you're, you're just South of Baltimore. As we speak, you're, you're on your way to Washington, DC, any message you're bringing to lawmakers? Yes, sir. That's, I definitely want to look at the policy angle on this. uh, with as many people as are following the, the run for rare, uh, it's not just to do a big run and get on the news and get the families on the news. Um, the world is rapidly changing uh, with science, technology, uh, 
and um, mindsets are um, hopefully changing to to elevate rare. And I know with uh, with a few of the new initiatives and legislation, um, I myself am still learning about 21st century cures and the Open Act, and working with many people in the rare disease community uh, to mentor me um, and to advise me. But I am meeting with my local congressman from uh, California, the California areas. I'm uh, hoping to meet with with Congressman uh, Fred Upton and uh, Congresswoman uh, Diana DeGette, uh, who are spearheading the 21st Century Cures Act. Um, and I'm meeting with, hopefully, I'm, I'm calling everybody. They know I'm coming. I've, uh, <laughs> I've talked to officials at the White House and the D.C. Mayor's office, as well as um, many towns along the way and the media. So doing the best I can to, to tell people about the policy. And where where can people follow your progress or, or donate? Uh, people can follow my progress on uh, runforrare.org. That's run4rare.org. Um, if people want to donate, they would. Uh, there's a donate uh, section on there. I'm uh, partnered up with North Bay Healthcare Foundation in Northern California, so all donations are uh, tax deductible and they get a receipt. Uh, it does go to fund the run and fund the documentary crew. Uh, for the Run for Rare feature length documentary, which will be out in in uh, in time for Rare Disease Week 2016, so and next year. Um, one the- special note: with with every single day, people can also go on Facebook. There's links to Facebook and Twitter. And I, as I go along, as I go across America, I I endorse and I uh, highlight and I plug the local charity or the local family that I'm running for. So I leave I leave it up to the uh, followers to donate where they ever where they want to go. Now, what's and ahead in the next couple of weeks for you? What what's the next leg? Well, uh, it's going to get interesting. After uh, Washington D.C., the uh, the film crew will fly back to California uh, for a few weeks, so I'll be on my own. And then I will go through uh, Virginia and to the Appalachians and into Knoxville, and then I will reach Nashville by April 9th to twelfth. So my miles are going to go up to about 26 miles a day and um, hoping for good weather. I get winded just talking to you, Noah. Yeah, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. It's not a sprint. It's not a marathon. It's a continent. So at times I walk, at times I run, and um, just trying to use daylight to my advantage, stay safe first of all, always looking at traffic. At the end of the day, every life matters, so that's my goal is to just elevate rare, no matter what rare it is, and just give everybody an equal chance to cure their disease. Noah Coughlin checking in from the road just south of Baltimore, 200 miles into his 3,100-mile cross-country trek to raise awareness for rare disease. Noah, thanks as always. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The BioReport, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. 
drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.